turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4 this morning. Um, if you are joining us for the first time, either online or in person, great day to join. We just started a new book. This is it. So, as we get into this Gospel, I wanted to remind you of what we um, have said as we've come close here. Um, and as we have started, we last week looked at Psalm 118 and reminded ourselves that Jesus is the King, that Jesus is the Lord, and He is the King whom we worship, that He is God. So if you turn in the Gospel of Luke, one of the greatest themes in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus has come to restore the kingdom. Jesus has come to restore the kingdom, and he doesn't restore it the way that we think he should. That's, that's the second part of that statement. Jesus has come to restore the kingdom, and he doesn't do it the way that we think he should. He does it his way, which I am grateful for, because if he did not do it his way, I would not be part of his kingdom. So, we want to rejoice in the truth that Jesus restores, and this is how. So let's dive right into reading, and we're going to just read the first four verses. This is the prelude or the prologue to Luke. It's the address of a letter. Yes, this is a massively long letter that he wrote to a guy named Theophilus. So let's read these first four verses together just to get our bearings as to where we are. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So, Luke opens his gospel with this very formal letterhead. This is excellent Greek. Better than all the other Greek in the New Testament, barring maybe Hebrews. This is very formal Greek. This first four verses is even better Greek grammatically than the rest of the book. This is a formal introduction, almost like Luke is writing a doctoral thesis, and this is the title page. I don't know if you've ever had to write a a thesis. I've had to write one. I had to write one for a master's class I was in in seminary, and, and they have a page that is your introductory statement and it has the professor's name and the class in it and what you're doing it for and your goal and it's got your proposition statement in there um, and it's got your main focus all in this one introductory page it has to be about a page long uh, or less because nobody wants to read longer introductions than a page or less and so it has to be about a page and and you've got uh, all these very formal stylized things that have to be put a certain way. The professor is called Dr. Reverend So-and-so. If you're in seminary, you use both the titles, which is 
totally redundant and ridiculous. And uh, you know, you have to have the 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 PhD titles behind the guy, and you have to have your title in there. You know, mine would be Reverend John Elkins, MDiv at the end, you know, comma MDiv at the end, or Masters of Divinity at the end of it, and it would have this whole long thing, and and you'd have this ridiculous thing. I would personally love to call myself Master John Elkins, by the way, and <laughs> pretend I had a Jedi hood of some sort, but um, that would that would you know just we'll move on. So he, you have to have this very formal thing, and that's what Luke is doing here. This very opening four verses is this very formal uh, presentation. It's a very formal presentation. And so uh, we want to, as we dive into Luke, I just want to cover a couple introductory things about the book as a whole. And as we go through Luke, we're going to be looking at all of the synoptics occasionally. We'll be going to Matthew and Mark and kind of bouncing back and forth between three, three or four stories at a time uh, in some occasions. But Luke is by far the largest of the Gospels. And indeed, Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and we think that he wrote them together. And when he wrote them together, we think that he wrote them all at once and sent them both to Theophilus at the same time, so that Theophilus would have this extended, incredibly long story. Right. Right. Long. And it would be this incredibly long story. And so we've got Luke writing uh, alongside the four Gospels. Now, About 40% of the material in Luke is unique to only Luke. About 40% is only in Luke. 60% of the Gospel of Luke can be found in Matthew, pardon me, Matthew and in Mark. I got excited and sang loud this morning. So I overexerted my throat. But I have tea. So Luke has about 60% of material that is with Mark. And as he was writing, most scholars believe that it's likely that he had a copy of Mark. Not only did he have a copy of Mark, but in the book of Acts, he, he actually travels some with Mark. He's a friend of Mark's. He knows Mark. He probably knew Matthew as well. Um, we, it's a little bit of speculation to say that he knew Matthew, but, but he probably knew Matthew as well, and he, that's why he has so much in common with these two other Gospels. He spent a lot of time with Mark. He traveled with Paul. Um, and we want to know who Luke is. So in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, Luke is mentioned by Paul as a physician. And a physician who has labored with him and a fellow laborer with Paul. So he's one of Paul's fellow laborers. He's a physician, a doctor. Now, uh, before you get any ideas as to what a doctor is in the first century... I want you to realize one thing. Doctors were not a prestigious career. Medicine was not a prestigious career until maybe the last 150 years. Um, before that, medicine, medicine and doctors, and uh, they were thought more of like snake oil salesmen. In fact, in the first century, there's a Roman uh, historian who writes about doctors, he himself being a doctor, writes about doctors, about how the majority of them are just charlatans who grab plants off the side of the road, mash them up, stick them in water, and tell you to drink them. So doctors were not highly regarded. It was not a highly regarded profession. It was not a wealthy profession. Now, there were two types of doctors, according to some famous historians. There were doctors that were uh, slaves, that were owned by the wealthy elite, 
that were edu- that were highly educated, that were provided for, that were highly educated, that spoke multiple languages, and were house servants that were owned by the wealthy elite for the purpose of keeping the owner healthy, for the purpose of dealing with illness and keeping the owner healthy. So these guys were highly educated, and they were slaves. They were owned by a, by a master. Then you had the other kind of doctors, which were the people that found profit, according to some ancient Roman sources, were the uh, people who found profit by convincing people to drink snake oils or to rub certain potions on themselves. They were essentially uh, magicians, and they said they would do things like pull rabbits from hats if they needed to in order to convince people that this was a necessary practice for them. And they would overcharge patients, and they would uh, line their own pockets. And that these were regarded, of course, as charlatans and ridiculous. Now, I told you at the outset that these first four verses are incredibly formal, and it's incredibly precise and good Greek. The rest of the book of Luke and the book of Acts are precisely very good Greek. It is excellent. It is not hard to understand what Luke is saying. He is highly educated. It is my belief, personally, that I think Luke at some point was a slave who was set free. That Luke at some point was educated as a doctor and as a slave. Um, there's... B.B. Uh, Warfield actually argues that he was on a ship, that he was a slave on a ship. He was a ship doctor. And the reason he says that is because he, um, he has such precise language when it comes to Paul's movements on the ships in the book of Acts. And he's referencing very specific things in the book of Acts. So it's highly likely that Luke was a highly educated, freed slave. He's a uh, very precise and well-educated man. But he, at one point, was owned by somebody. And we know that he's no longer owned by somebody because he gets to travel with Paul pretty freely. And there's no mention of him having to go back to his owner. So, do with that what you will. But there's beauty here, Right? In this character of Luke, this highly educated, very educated man surrenders his life to walk with Paul for the sake of the gospel. Luke, we know, stays with Paul constantly. Now, he was a doctor, which means that he was acquainted with being around the sick and dying. And I don't know how many doctors you've been around. I grew up, I'm the son of a doctor, and I grew up around doctors, and they are often very, they're not pessimistic, but very realistic people. Um, when somebody gets sick, a doctor can shrug and go, they might die with no emotional attachment. That's because they spend all their time around people who are dying. I remember walking through, I can still smell it, I remember walking through the, uh, the cancer and AIDS wards at the hospitals when I was visiting my dad. You can you know that smell? It's the smell of death as you walk through those rooms. It's human dying. And for me, it was overwhelming. And I remember my dad walking in front of me and smiling at patients and talking to them and, and giving them hope and encouragement and, 
and had a big smile on his face. And as we walked through, we came out the other side, and I remember my dad going, and that, that was the extent of it for him. He, he took a deep breath, and then he just kept walking. And I, that, it's vivid. It's, it's one of those memories that's just plastered in my brain. I don't even remember which hospital it was or what state we were living in, but we walked through, and I was overwhelmed by the sense of smell and death, and my dad just took a deep breath and kept moving. Luke is acquainted with death like my dad was. He's acquainted with sick people like my dad was. It doesn't mean that he didn't care. It doesn't mean that he didn't love them. In fact, it probably means he had a deeper affection for these people who were dying and who were in detriment probably means he had a deeper affection for them, but just the deep breath and the sigh that he took to move on. This is a man of fortitude. This is a man of fortitude and strength. Luke is going to talk about Jesus in very matter-of-fact language. He's going to say things about Jesus that, where there's no ambiguity. There's no stretch. He is going to walk through the death of life, and he's going to say, Jesus' is life. And that's it. There's no caveats. There's no, I understand what you're going through. There's none of that. It's, you are dying and Jesus is life. Repent and believe. That's going to be the message of Luke over and over as we go. He's going to be very matter of fact. Luke was faithful. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, uh, Paul laments that Demas, one of his brothers who has been with him for about two years, has abandoned Paul for the cares of the world, and only Luke remains with him. Luke remains with him. And so in 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, Luke is still there, and he has remained with him. When everybody else is gone, Luke stays. Luke is faithful. You know, at some point, Paul probably looked at Luke and said, Hey, Luke, you don't have to stick around. Probably looked at Luke and said, Luke, you can go. You are free. I'm not your master. You're a free man. And I imagine Luke looking at him going, where am I going to go? We are preaching the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go? Luke was faithful and stayed with Paul. He knew and worked with Paul through trial, and he wrote down all the stories of Acts. Third, Luke was an educated Greek. We know that he's probably not a Jew. I said probably because he could have been, but it's very, very unlikely. Uh, he was an educated Greek, and I say that because of the language he uses. He uses uh, language that is perfect Greek. It is, it is excellent, which is unusual in the New Testament. We have this phrase in uh, theology and in churches that you've heard before, Koine Greek. Right? You've heard that? Koine Greek? Maybe. Um, if you've ever heard a pastor say, this is written in Koine Greek, that means common language Greek. That means they wrote it in American. They didn't write it in English, they wrote it in American. They're using contractions, they're you know, using slang terms, they're using idioms. They wrote it like a blog post. It's not in proper English. Here, the Greek is not in great Greek all the time. The Gospel of John and the uh, Gospels of Matthew and Mark don't have perfect Greek, and you shouldn't expect them to. They were Jewish people who spoke Aramaic, who
who wrote Greek for business. So you shouldn't expect him to have perfect Greek. But Luke has nearly perfect Greek. Nearly perfect. It's, it's written in Koine Greek, after verse 4. It's written in Koine Greek. It's not written in classical Greek. But it's perfect. It's spot on. There aren't grammatical things where you read it and go, well, that could mean seven different things. No, when Luke says something, it typically means one thing. It's pretty precise. Second reason that we think he was a Greek is because of his knowledge of, uh, of, of, of the, the language in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, when he says, their language, he's referring to the Jews, they spoke in their language. He's, he separates himself there, the author separates himself from the uh, people. And then finally in Colossians 4, verse 14, which we mentioned earlier, he is mentioned not, um, he's not mentioned among the circumcision, those who were circumcised. So he's not a Jew. He's a Greek. He's a Gentile. This should give us hope. Think about that. God decided to use a Gentile to write his gospel. You. Me. He decided to use one of us. That was very American of me. He decided to use one of us to write his gospel. A Gentile to write his gospel. God can and does use those with imperfect backgrounds. He's a slave. He's not a Jew. He has no prestige in the Jewish community. And yet God has used the, the doctor, Luke, the slave doctor, Luke, who followed around Paul. He used him for his glory and his name. He uses an imperfect person to proclaim a perfect gospel. To proclaim a perfect gospel. He uses imperfect backgrounds to further his kingdom. What does that say he can do with you? If he uses Luke, a slave, who is freed at some point, who walks around with Paul, if he uses who's a Gentile, who doesn't have the background or the pedigree that Paul does, if he uses him, what do you think he can do with you? Now think about the relationship just for a minute of Paul and Luke. Paul was the perfect Jew, right? Born of the, the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day as to the letter of the law, according to his own testimony in Philippians 3, as to the letter of the law, perfect, blameless in every way. As to zeal, he persecuted the church. He was the perfect Jew. If Paul had remained Jewish and had not converted to Christianity and had not begun to follow Jesus Christ then he would have been one of the greatest rabbis in history. He was the top student of Gamaliel. Gamaliel, by the way, is a rabbi in the first century who is still quoted today. They still quote him now. Not, not, as, not, as, not, not like we do with pastors of old, where, where we have a meme that goes on Facebook. You know, where we quote something out of context and we say, oh, look at what he believed. No, they quote Gamaliel like the law. The Bible is here and Gamaliel's right next to it. How do you understand this passage? Gamaliel says, that's, that's intense. There is not a Christian scholar that we do that with. Not to that extent. Paul was that guy's student. Paul was going to be the next one. 
He was going to be the next one. Paul, this perfect Jew, is left with nobody but Luke at one point in his ministry. Paul, the perfect Jew, who's given the perfect pedigree, he's a Roman citizen, whose dad was a Roman citizen, who had uh, all this prestige and background, and he knew who he was, and he could walk into Caesar's court if he wanted to. He had that kind of pedigree and that kind of education, and Luke, the Gentile slave doctor, lowest caste in society, is Paul's only friend. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ transcends all of our socioeconomic education and personal backgrounds. It doesn't matter how great your background is. It doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter how uh, well-known you are or what kind of pedigree you have. The gospel levels all of that and says we are sinners who are rescued by a gracious Savior who has lifted us from the ashes and made us valuable, not because of who we are, but because of who He is. So Luke is a powerful testimony to us that the gospel transcends boundaries in favor of Christ-centered community. I would also point out, the last thing I want to point out about Luke is that he's never the central character in any of his stories. He's never in the story. He's mentioned four times in the Bible by name. And he's never in the story. He never says, I said, or we, or I did. It's always we and Paul. He's always third person. He's always separated. He never exalts his, himself. I want to hear stories when we get to heaven. I, just bear with me. This is somewhat speculative. And if you're going to argue with me about the nature of heaven, let's do it over lunch or coffee. So um, if, when I get to heaven, I'm going to seek out Luke and I want to ask him stories that he did. Because he didn't tell us any. But he was with Paul for years. I mean, he's on the boat that shipwrecks. He's the doctor on the boat that shipwrecks with Paul. Nothing. We don't hear a word about, I tended to the wounded, or I did these things, or I, you know, Paul's bitten by a snake. Who examines Paul to know he's not poisoned? It had to be Luke. Right? Nobody else does it. I mean, this guy doesn't write anything about himself. This is a man of remarkable humility. Now, through this gospel, we're going to see a key theme that Jesus is king. This is the key thing of his gospel. Jesus is king, and he loves the broken, contrite sinner. Jesus is king, and he loves the broken, contrite sinner. We're going to see this constant contrast between those who are upright and perfect and those who are not. And Luke is going to say, be like those who are broken. Be like those who are broken. Don't be like those who are upright and perfect. Because there is no one upright and perfect except Jesus. Be like those who are broken. The second theme that I would point you to as we start this study is an emphasis on the humanity and engagement of Jesus. This is a king who is divine and and God himself who has come down as a man. And Luke wants to emphasize he came down 
as a man to engage your humanity. We see Jesus being portrayed in the Gospel of John as Jesus is God. That's the big theme there. Luke portrays Jesus, same, same story, slightly different angle. This is Jesus, who is God, became man. Man. He engaged our humanity. He knelt down to the dirt. That's us. He knelt down to the dirt, and he became man. So just for those of you who like to keep outlines, we've got an outline here of the book that I'll rattle off for you. In chapters 1 through 4, you've got the prelude to Christ, or the introduction to Christ. Christ shows up in chapter 5. You've got the prelude to Christ in 1 through 4. You've got the Galilean ministry in chapter, uh, the end of chapter 4 through 9, verse 50. Then you've got chapter 9, the bulk of the book, chapter 9, 51 through chapter 19, verse 27, which is him going to Jerusalem. Then you've got 19, verse 28 through 23, verse 56, which is the Passion Week of Christ, that last week of his life. And then you've got the resurrection and ascension in chapter 24. There's your outline. Are you ready to dive into the verses that we... That was all introduction. Aren't you excited for Luke? This is how every sermon's going to be. Massive. It's going to be like three-hour messages. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm not serious. It won't be three hours. Maybe two. Um, so, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. First, note he address, who he addresses the letter to there in verse 3. Most excellent Theophilus. <coughs> Theophilus was someone of higher rank than Luke. That term, most excellent, probably indicates that this is some sort of official. He's some sort of official with some sort of title, some sort of position above Luke. And so this is as though Luke is presenting this doctoral thesis to Professor Theophilus. Now, he's not a professor. Otherwise, Luke would have used the term professor. But he's most excellent. He's somebody in high position. Some theologians speculate that he was a, a uh, a Roman official. Now, there is an idea that the name Theophilus is not a name, but a title. That lover of God, or friend of God, Theophilus, C-O and uh, Philo, Theophilus, lover of God, is a moniker or a nickname that indicates anybody who has an affection for God, any, anybody who has an affection for for God, I, I tend to think that this is a real person that he's writing to, Theophilus. Again, I tend to take the Bible literally when I read it, and he's writing to a guy named Theophilus. So this man, who maybe is marked by his name, lover of God, is most excellent, or somebody uh, above Luke. Now the goal here of Luke, we see here uh, at the very outset, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, so, inasmuch as many have done this, many people have already compiled a narrative. So, Luke is probably writing after Mark and after Matthew. And he's saying, many have tried to do this. Many have sat down to compile a narrative. Many have sat down to write out what has happened among us. He says, many have tried to write these things down, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. 
So the goal here is to give an accurate account. Look at uh, what he says down here. He says, just as those who from the beginning, verse 2, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So they've been delivered to us. Uh, so he's, he's saying there's a bunch of people who have written this down, that the word was delivered to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past. So having followed along and paid attention, Luke is writing an, a consistent, reliable narrative that is factually accurate to send to this Roman official or this official of some sort or this person in high esteem of some sort. He is writing to Theophilus this so that Theophilus, there in verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke wants to write about what uh, has been accomplished so that Theophilus would have certainty of what he's been taught. Now this phrase, uh, what you've been taught, is the word where we get our idea for catechism from. Uh, if you're Catholic, you know what catechism is. If you have a Catholic background, you know what catechism is. If you're at all Reformed, you probably have a, or you've been around the Reformed community, you probably have heard the term catechism. This is a, catechisms are a series of questions that you are to memorize. So you memorize these questions and you memorize their answers. The most famous among Christian catechisms is the Westminster Catechism. And it says, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Uh, if you're John Piper, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So just a nuance, and he's a theologian, and there we're all crazy about nuance. So he, that's a catechism, right? This is catechism, and he says... This is so you can be certain of your catechism. So somebody at some point has gone to Theophilus and taught him the word of God. Luke is writing this narrative to make sure that Theophilus knows the word of God, knows who Jesus is, and somebody has taught him about this. And look, specifically, he wants to write about what has been accomplished among us. What has been accomplished among us? Look at that. It's the story of the gospel accomplishes something among us. This gospel message is what has happened inside us. What has changed us. And as Luke writes, we're going to see over and over, this is us. This is our story. It's a story that has a great deal to do about you, but is not but it's not about you. It's a story that has a great deal to do with you, but it's not about you. It's a story in which you are not the main character, but you are in it. You are in it. You're not the main character. You're not the key point of the story. You are not the king. But you are in the story. You're there. But you're not the hero. Sometimes we're going to relate to the villain, and it's going to be very uncomfortable, and on those Sundays, no one's going to want to stay for lunch. It'll be great, because <laughs> I'll make you stay for lunch anyway. Maybe we'll plan it. Um, so, so we have all these various things, and we see the story accomplishes something in us. The message is not about you or what you do, but it is about the Lord and what He has done on your behalf. It's about what's done in you. The message does not make you look good, but it exalts the one who is good in your life. 
the king is coming in victory, and we cannot fathom what that looks like. And Luke wants to help us see it. So he writes that you would be certain. This instruction implies that he was taught verbally the idea, and and the idea of certainty means that he wants Theophilus not just to have something verbal that he received from somebody, but he wants him to have the story written down. So it's certain. So it's done. So it can be put out. So it can be put down in front of you. Do you remember when we couldn't read the Bible in our own language? Yeah, I don't either. I don't remember that either. Isn't it great that I don't remember that? Isn't it wonderful to know that you have the story written out for you with certainty that you can see the king of glory by opening a book and reading a few lines? It's amazing. It's amazing that we could be certain. Thank God for men like Luke, Matthew, Mark, and John who sat down to write gospel narratives that we would be able to see the King of Glory and we could know Him fully and we have it in our hands and God preserved it through godly men throughout history and He wrote it in languages after language after language after language. He kept inspiring men to translate it and now we have incredibly accurate and precise translations of Scripture. One of the funniest things about these debates about which which version is best is that often those debates are made in English. Which version is best? English is one language on the earth. One language. And we have over a hundred versions in our language. You learn to speak Greek or Hebrew learn to read and write Greek or Hebrew, and the argument falls right out the window. Which, which version do you prefer? The Greek? That ends it right there. They're like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> I can't speak Greek. Right like this. It's over. All right. <laughs> this, is, this is silly. We have the Bible in our language. We can speak with the Lord. You can hear Him talk to you. You can literally read the Bible out loud and you are... Literally hearing the word of the Lord spoken to you. You are hearing God's very voice spoken to you in your own language. That's amazing. And Luke wrote it down so that Theophilus would have it for certainty. Now he's got some sources here that he mentions. So first he mentions, or first we we see his goal, that he wants to give an accurate account of the story of what has been accomplished here. And as we read, by the way, we're going to see some things accomplished in our own lives. We're going to see what God has accomplished in our own lives as well. So then he mentions some sources. Many, Many people have done this first. He says there's been many who have endeavored to compile a narrative. I love the opening lines to the Gospel of Luke because it is wordy and academic and I feel better about my own writing when I read it. My wife and I are currently editing a book and every time we start a new section, she takes a deep sigh 
and goes, it's like you just took all of the big words in your head and strung them together. This doesn't make any sense. So look at this opening sentence. I feel a whole lot better. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, comma, he's not done, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, comma, it seemed good to me also, comma, having followed all things closely for some time past, comma, to write an orderly account for you, the most excellent Theophilus, comma, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That is a long sentence. And he has written it to be precise and to be ordered. And he mentions off, you see his sources in there. He says there's other brothers who have written. So he probably had a copy of Mark. And he probably sat with Matthew and talked with them. He definitely talked with Luke. He, I mean, he definitely talked with Paul. He is Luke. He definitely talked with Paul. He talked with all these other eyewitnesses and people who were there. He has sources of written sources. And then he has eyewitnesses. Uh, the word here for eyewitness is actually interesting. It's a medical term from where we get our idea of autopsy. This is somebody who sees and investigates something that has happened. Autopsy. So the eyewitnesses here are people who autopsy the story of Christ. People who have investigated and have looked deeply into the story of Christ. They are first-hand investigations of the story of Christ. So imagine Luke walking into a city and going, okay, so there's that story of when he healed the guy's daughter, Jairus, and he's, so he lives here, so that must have happened right here. And then he goes to Jairus' house, and he goes up and he says, could you show me the basement room where the daughter was healed? And Jairus goes, oh, it was actually the upper room. And he goes, ha, 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 I tried to get you. Tried to get you, see, I was trying to, Upper room, all right. Upper room, upper room, circle, check. You know, like he's he's checking off boxes. He's investigating things closely. He's dealing with people who have investigated the story of Jesus and know what happened. This is not. He didn't go secondhand. He didn't go watch a YouTube video. He didn't. He went and talked to the actual person who was there. He went and talked to the person who was there, eyewitnesses. Then he calls them eyewitnesses and ministers. So this word for ministers is the word under rower. Under rower. Uh, in, in a hospital situation or with a physician, this would be the person who is attending to the physician. So you've got the doctor who's doing the surgery, and you've got the other doctor who's standing next to him, watching him do the surgery and handing him the, the scalpel when he needs it. Hey, you need this? Here, here's a scalpel. Scalpel, he hands him. The under rower is the guy who handed him the scalpel. Right? This is the other doctor that's in attendance next to the physician. So these are people, when he talks about eyewitnesses and ministers, he's talking about those people who are actively involved in the work of Christ. People who are actively participating in the work of Jesus. These are under rowers, people who are there. So imagine, this took years to do. 
to gather these sources, to compile this narrative. It took years to do. No wonder this is the longest gospel. It took years for him to do this. Then he has the method. We see the method of his work in that he interviewed people. And notice what he says here. Just as those who, from the beginning, he went and he found people who were there at the beginning. He went and found people who were there at the beginning and interviewed them and talked with them. From the beginning. It's the same word that John 3 uses. From the beginning here is the same word that John 3 uses when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is uh, talking about being born again. And he says, you have been born again, born from the beginning, or uh, the way that we would probably want to interpret it, and that it should probably be interpreted, is from above. Remember what I said about Luke being very precise with his language. He is saying, from above, these people, from above or from, it can be translated either way, from above or from the beginning. Both are acceptable. This is a double entendre word. It's got two co-equal meanings. And he says this from the beginning. I, I went and talked to people who were there from the beginning or from above. It's probably best to think of it as from above, isn't it? Because what Luke is saying is this is from God. This is from God himself. From the beginning is from God. Your investigation of Jesus, hear this, Christian, your investigation of Jesus is from above. It is from above. God is directing and guiding it. When I meet a skeptic or a cynic or somebody who says they don't believe in Jesus, yet they're, they're pursuing truth, they're chasing down truth, and they're trying to, trying to figure out what is truth, I laugh. I don't believe in Jesus, that they're pursuing truth. I'm like, well, you're going to. You're going to run into him. You can't run away from God. He is truth. Not he is a truth. Not he's like truth. He is actually truth. If you are a non-believer and you are pursuing truth, you are going to run into Jesus. Like a wall. You're just going to careen right into him. You're going to hurt yourself doing it. It's going to be a glorious pain because hopefully it will bring you to repentance and faith in Christ. You see, when somebody says, I tried Jesus, I laugh and tell them you didn't try Jesus because he's not something you try. You don't try Jesus. He is or he isn't. You don't. There's no try. There's only do. Yoda was right. There is no try. There's only do. He is truth, and if you pursue Jesus, if you pursue truth, you will run into Jesus. And then he says, in order to give you, it seemed good to me, verse 3, it seemed good to me, also, having followed things closely, to write an orderly account. I love this term because it's an artistic term, and it involves gathering all the materials before painting a masterpiece. Isn't that beautiful? He says, I wanted to give you an orderly account. And he doesn't use the word that a physician would use, which is a systematic account. He uses the word that an artist would use. Orderly. I gathered all these materials to paint the masterpiece. 
You see, as precise as Luke is, as specific as he is, as, as direct as he is, he wants you to see the beauty of God. He wants you to see the beauty of Christ. He wants you to know that this is the most beautiful, powerful truth in life. And oh, we are in to see a beautiful gospel revelation that Jesus Christ died, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, that you would be freed from sin and, re- and resurrected to new life in Christ Jesus. If only you have faith in Him. How beautiful this gospel is. An orderly account, an artistic word that means gathering the material and painting the masterpiece. And finally, what we see here And what I want to conclude with is the word. Right there in the middle, in verse 2. Eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. I do not know why that is not capitalized. It should be. There's a direct, there's a, uh, there's a, what are are they called? The, uh, an article, a direct article. There's an article there attached to the word. This is not a word. This is not a kind of word. This is Jesus. He says, they were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word, of Jesus. This entire book is about Jesus. And like we said, the story is not about you, but you're in it. Let's rephrase it. The story is about Jesus, and you're in it. The message is about Jesus and what He has done in you. The message here in this book is about what Jesus has accomplished in us. What a beautiful thing He is the Word. I love that He uses the same term as John. John, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He uses that same creative energy, that same creation power, that God, by His Word, created the heavens and the earth, said, let there be light, and there was light, said, let the, there be an expanse between the day and the night, and there was. He said, let there be animals, and there was. The same power of life that is in the Word of God, that then First Peter chapter 3 is going to tell us, or Second Peter chapter 3 is going to tell us, is the breath of God, the very scripture, verse 16 and verse 16 and 17, the scripture is the very breath of God that breathes life into us. The word of God is the breath of God. Jesus Christ gives us life, the power of life, the creation power of God. The King has come. And we are going to spend the next year reading this story and delighting in the presence of our King who has come to rescue if you would just believe. If we just believe and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we will see the kingdom manifest inside our hearts because He changes us first. And we will be able to rejoice in that not only has He come once to redeem, rescue, and restore. But He's coming back again to redeem, rescue, and finish. So let's pray and thank God
for the revealing of the king.